Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Dr. Matt Strauss in Ontario talks about focused protection versus punitive vax taxes. Parenting expert Allison Schaefer looks at eco-anxiety in our kids and says it's something parents need to pay attention to. Condo Smarts columnist Tony Juventu has a list of tips to help strata communities be better organized at the start of a new year. And Watershed Watch Salmon Society director Aaron Hill has a lot to say about the Alaskan fishing fleet ripping off BC salmon. So let's get started. It's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Matt Strauss to our program. Dr. Strauss is the Acting Medical Officer of Health for Haldeman Norfolk. This is a couple of counties just north of Toronto near Lake Simcoe in Ontario. And he's one of thousands of Canadian doctors having very strong second thoughts about the proposed vax taxes in the province of Quebec. Dr. Strauss, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back, Dr. Matt. You and I first talked on the radio a couple of years ago when you were among the first Canadian signatories to a a document called the Great Barrington Declaration in which uh, the proposal was made to focus, to, uh, to deal with something called focused protection. So if that had been adopted, Dr. Matt, where would we be today versus where we are today? Oh, it's uh, it's it's hard to to flesh out the counterfactual. I think that in general, um, there would have been a lot less harm to the public health in terms of all of the um, negative repercussions of of lockdown. So there would have been fewer people unemployed, fewer people depressed, uh, fewer overdoses, less um, less anxiety, less um, less less physical abuse and neglect, less less learning loss in schools, um, and and all of that money that we wasted on, um, you know, paying healthy 18-year-olds $2,000 uh, a month to, to sit at home in their basement, um, all of that could have gone into to protecting the folks who truly were at risk, so older folks and people with important medical problems. In my province of Ontario, we've built precisely zero hospitals um, over the last two years. I believe we've built one new hospital in the last 30 years. So. Um, a, a statistic I like to give is uh, on a national level, we spent $400 billion on this, on this very restrictive lockdown approach. Mm-hmm. And $400 billion is enough to build a brand new, sparkling new hospital in every city and town uh, across our nation. So I, I think we, we really missed the ball or dropped the ball and uh, didn't put resources where they were needed. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch, Dr. Strauss, please, of the, of the notion, the concept? What does focused protection mean? Sure. Um, it, throughout public health, uh, you know, there's there's finite healthcare resources, and we want to do uh, the most good uh, with the resources that we have. Sure. So it, it has always been the case that we've um, you know targeted uh, anti-smoking ads sure. to to you know we put them on smoking packages. We don't we don't put them on the uh, six o'clock news because we we go where the smokers are. Right. Um, HIV medicines have saved lives like gangbusters, um, but we don't, but they're extremely expensive. So we, we make sure that folks who, and when we have these conversations non-judgmentally in a healthcare environment, uh, we ask folks, we build trust with them. So they tell us what their risk behaviors are. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing some pretty risky behaviors, um, we provide them with those HIV medicines. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's done the lion's share of work in terms of reducing the, the deaths from HIV across our country. So uh, COVID-19, just, just ballpark, 
you are 10,000 times more likely to die of COVID-19 if you're over 75 than if you're under 15. Mm -hmm. And so I have seen a lot of stress and anxiety and panic about um, school closures. And, uh, and that's not where, that's not, that's not who's at risk for COVID-19. Um, and, and I think we've counterproductively harmed children by pretending that schools aren't safe, shutting down the schools, um, you know, canceling their uh, little league and hockey and dance classes making them sit at home when they were never at risk from this disease. It was old folks in nursing homes who were. So let's talk a little bit now about these steps, because you've outlined uh, what what could have been, but now let's talk about what is. And if there's any one lesson 38 million Canadians have learned in the last two years, Dr. Strauss, it is how fragile our health care system is. We are among the heaviest spenders on health care in the entire developed world. But the results, what we get, our bang for our buck in health care, is among the poorest in the developed world. A lot of work required there. There's so much to do. I don't have easy answers. I'm glad that um, broadly across the public we're paying attention to this now because it was apparent to me from the from the first time I set foot in the hospital as a medical student. Um, I've seen horrible things, um, and I don't I don't necessarily want to uh, tell your listeners about it on their Saturday morning. But I've seen horrible things. I've seen horrible things for the last 15 years, and. Um, Sometimes when I tell folks about the horrible things that I've seen, they, they presume that I mean during the pandemic, and I, I, I don't necessarily. Mm. So, I, I mean, just a quick thing, two years ago, so about uh, so January 2020, before any of us had heard the word COVID, um, I had a 92-year-old woman who spent three days in a stretcher in the hall, uh, in the emergency room in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, and her 70-year-old daughter said, well, should I just take her home? And I said, yeah, you should. And mm. she said, shouldn't she be in the hospital? And I said, yeah, she should. But apparently that's not happening. So um, I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't have happened. And uh, that's, that's kind of been the status quo for a long time. Let's talk a little bit in the remaining time we have, Dr. Strauss, about Quebec. And, and you're, you're quite dug in against the notion of punitive vaccine taxes. What's the, what's the big beef? Right. Well, let me, let me start by saying why it why it might make sense, and then I'll say why uh, I'm, I'm so deeply concerned. Okay. Um, the, the vaccines work. Um, they save lives. And they're, they're cheap. It's like $10 a shot, and it, it prevents COVID-19 um, uh, hospitalization uh, to the tune of 95%. They're amazing. Um, so, yes, I understand the public is frustrated when folks aren't getting it. Yep. Um, in my career as a hospital doctor, my whole career, I've, I've taken care of folks who have made not great choices. And you and I both probably made some not great choices regarding our health in the last 24 hours. Safe so if we, got, if we got fries instead of salad, uh, if we smoked a cigarette or had some alcohol or I don't, I don't know what recreational drugs, uh, uh, well, <laughs> I won't name any, but, um, I, and I haven't done any. But uh, when folks show up at the hospital, same as with those HIV meds, we don't approach them with judgment. We approach them with, tell me what's happening so I know how to help you. And that is not the tone that I see our public uh, healthcare system taking towards these folks who are unvaccinated, who sometimes they don't have the degree of education that uh, they might be able to interpret the scientific literature. Sometimes they're, they're very educated um, and they, they, they're just not buying it. Yep. Um, and I, I, I want to reach those folks from a place of non-judgment. And when I see the prime minister going on TV and saying unvaccinated people are often racist, yeah. I, it's, it, it seems like scapegoating to me. And one thing I, I do want to say to your audience, 
Quebec has had three times more COVID-19 deaths per capita than British Columbia. And they have had the most restrictive COVID-19 response um, by a mile. And, and it's performed the worst. So what, what I see is them scapegoating for a failed response, uh, ultimately. And of course, it's an election year, so they have to be seen to be doing something terribly positive. And this uh, this takes the the focus off their uh, inaction, and uh, uh, they found a scapegoat. Uh, it's going to be interesting. The constitutional challenges, I suspect, will deep six that one in a big hurry. Nice to have you along with us this Saturday morning, the mid-Saturday morning of the month of January. Our next guest is one of Canada's foremost parenting experts who receives letters like this all the time from everywhere in the country. Dear Allison, after seeing the images of the flooding in Vancouver, my 12-year-old was really upset. He's been convinced about things he's learning about climate change, but now his worries seem to be at a whole new level. Is this what's being called eco-anxiety. I'm trying to help him work through his fears, but he does have legitimate reasons to be concerned. I don't want to lie to him, but I also don't want him to be stressed and anxious all the time. How can I help him? Signed, Worried Mom. This is uh, very typical of the sort of correspondence our guest receives on a daily basis. A pleasure to welcome Allison Schaefer to our program. Allison, good morning and thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, It's good to have you with us. So what did you tell worried mom in Vancouver about her 12-year-old's eco-anxiety, Allison? Well, what I told her was from her description that she was probably quite accurate and that he was suffering uh, eco-anxiety. And then I went on to clarify to her and also to the listeners now to understand exactly what that is. Uh, The first thing to know is that it's not a recognized diagnosis the way other forms of depression uh, and anxiety are. Okay. Uh, according to this, we have this compendium. If you want to meet the criteria for a mental health disorder, you have to meet the criteria in this book called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And that is not listed there. Um, it may be when they update it, they update it every 10 years or so. But that doesn't mean that, you know, myself as a family counselor and working in the mental health profession, we all are very aware um, of this presentation in our clients, mm-hmm. in, our, in our youth, and we're ready to respond to it. We recognize it as being a problem. And I would say to parents, anytime your child manifests with any kind of mental health issue, what we're looking for is does it per, um, persevere? Like, is it ongoing? Does this Is it constantly in the background? And does it interfere with functioning? And that could be functioning with schoolwork, with socializing, with their sleeping, their eating, whatever. Those two things say you've got you've got trouble, reach out and get some help. So um, in this case, I said, yes, you know what, I'm I'm guessing from what you've described. But I also kind of tried to calm her nerves to say, boy, oh, boy, you're not alone. Sure. Um, We're we're seeing these huge uh, rising rates. And in fact, I think it might be interesting for some of the listeners here and for you too, Sterling, to know that we just conducted, I say we, not, I mean, uh, researchers in Bath, UK, they conducted a big survey, a different and larger than any other survey of its kind on this topic. And they polled 16 to 25 year olds in 10 different countries around the world. Mm, okay. The question, I know, it was a big, big survey. Yeah. We haven't done this kind of research before. And so they asked them, they said, you know, how are you feeling about climate change? And, and this is interesting, and the government's response okay. to it. <laughs> and, and what came back was, I think, 
fairly alarming or indicative of how we need to have this on our radar. 60% of these kids said that they felt either very worried or extremely worried. This is a big concern to our youth. Um, 45% of them actually said that they felt that, and this is what I was saying earlier about diagnosing, that climate change was impacting their daily lives. It's impacting their functioning. So we have a lot of worried youth on our hands. I have, a, I have a kind of a cynical question for you, Allison. Go for uh, it. Back, Call me cynical. B- back, to the, back to the notion of eco-anxiety. What's the source of the eco-anxiety, and is anyone profiting from eco-anxiety? Uh, I don't know the answer to is anybody profiting. Um, I can tell you that it's, it's, it's wide-spanning. So, um, you know, we saw, again, this woman's writing in because her son had just heard these uh, uh, images and seen the flooding in Vancouver. So that was, like, kind of close to home. It sure was. But you could also imagine, uh, in terms of proximity, if you're somebody who's lived through a hurricane, an earthquake, um, the forest fires that we've seen ravaging where you might have lost your home. And, you know, if you're a five- or six-year-old and you lose your house to a forest fire, burning fires, um, you know, we saw that in Fort McMurray. You know, you're rattled about your sense of security. You know, you start to worry about this all the time. So it's... Um, if you're an urban dweller and it sort of feels like it's happening somewhere around the globe, it might not be as close to home, but right. kids are very sensitive. They see the polar bears that can't get their food on the little ice caps, and they're very emotionally attuned to this. And, uh, okay, uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to track down the source of all of this, and, and I'm, I'm suspecting, at least to some extent, the schools are very much involved in this because this is, this is curriculum for a lot of Canadian kids, isn't it? It is curriculum for a lot of Canadian kids, and I think it's important because they are going to be the stewards of our planet. Sorry, they're inheriting the crap we've left them, (laughs) but we're hoping that that we do better in a generation. And what I've seen in the research as well, and I think this is important to highlight here, if, if you don't have any worry about the environment, you're kind of ignorant and complicit and you tend not to be an environmental steward. You're more likely to use single use plastics, litter, not care. If you're overly worried, then you're going to be crippled, and um, and then you're paralyzed, and yeah. that's not helpful either. We want to get kids right in this medium zone where they're passionate, they care, and we want to mobilize them into action. So that's like there's a sweet spot there, and we just don't want to tip it too far. And unfortunately, that happens with um, the way that kids ingest information, and I think that's where parents need to be aware. If, if a lot of these kids, especially now with so much online schooling in the last couple of years, yeah. Artificial intelligence says, if you liked that post, I'm going to send you more like that. Mm-hmm. So if you start looking at extinct animals, you're suddenly going to get a feed of every animal that's gone extinct, that's hurting, that's suffering. And then kids fill their mind with the idea that this is in proportion to what's happening and they don't hear any of the good news. Yeah. So we need to start thinking, oh my gosh, look at this initiative where they brought this animal back from extinction. Or look at how they're doing renewable resources in Iceland and the, tur- tur- turn the conversation to some of the ways that we are making improvements. Allison, one of the things that you talk about in your response to this worried mom who had the 12-year-old who lived through the floods to say nothing of the forest fires and the atmospheric rivers, been, in Brit- been in quite a year in British Columbia, 2021 for a 
number of reasons is a very unforgettable year for British Columbians. Uh, and of course, with young people in our province, there's just wave after wave of uh, eco-crisis of one description or another. And one of the bits of advice you passed along to this mom and, and all BC parents, for that matter, is, is something called take action. So talk to us a little bit about what you mean by being becoming more proactive as a way of uh, sort of stemming the tide of anxiety. Right. So this is a, a principle that we use with a lot of emotions, including grief. You know, if we are anxious or grieving, um, if we're anxious, we tend to perseverate and our thoughts just go around and around and around. Mm. Woe is me. What can I do? I feel so powerless. And that drives us down into these anxieties can lead us into depression. Those are also um, comorbid issues. It, often if you're depressed, you're anxious. If you're anxious, you're depressed. Yep. So it drives us down and it paralyzes us. So instead, if we say, okay, you know what? You don't like the state of the nation. You're worried about the polar bears. You're worried about the flooding. What can we do? Can we donate clothes? Can we go fill a sandbag? Can we donate to a fund? Can we? At the minute you turn it into action, then this alleviates the perseverating of the thought and it, it allows the release of the anxiety. And mm. then they feel like, I'm doing my part. Am I doing everything? No, it's a huge undertaking. But we begin. So we begin. We're doing our part and every little part adds up. And it really is therapeutic and cathartic for our children as well as for the adults. And on on a final note, that that goes to another hint that you did pass along, which is all about upping the level of control. What do you mean by that? So this speaks to all forms of anxiety. And again, you know, we've got anxiety around COVID and and now with this environmental deterioration. When little children, young children, feel that they have a sense of control over things in their command, they feel more empowered, that they can make a difference, that they're not invisible and powerless. So we're talking about little kids tackling the environment. Not every parent's going to raise a, you know, a um, Greta Thornburg, who's going to go speak at the UN. But, sure. um, but, but if you have a little kid who knows how to dress themselves, who knows how to pack their own lunch, work a washing machine, you know, small, simple ways like this that are in everyday life, that child starts to feel, you know what, I have a voice, I matter, I can handle myself, I can, I can solve problems, I, I'm up for the challenges. And it's from that position of self-agency, self-determination, that kids feel like I can handle the bigger problems, the, the larger global problems to my level, but I feel a lot less like I'm a victim or, or passively being acted upon. So all of those little small things, parents making their own lunch, teaching them how to you know, make muffins with you, mm. those, are all, those all count, believe it or not. Right, right, because they all, they all end up as accomplishments, and that's a confidence yes. builder right there, isn't it? Yep, they become capable people who have an impact, and that's what we want them knowing. Gosh, what a pleasure to have you on our program today, Allison Schaefer. Just a joy. I love the attitude and the positivity. And friends, AllisonSchaefer.com is a great resource. Have a, have a good long look. Allison, thanks so much for this. Great to speak to you. Let's do it again. My pleasure, and please have me back. Oh, I'd love to. Allison Schaefer is one of Canada's leading parenting experts. AllisonSchaefer.com is her website. She's also at Allison Schaefer on Twitter. A pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. He is the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of British Columbia and also known to newspaper readers across the province as the weekly author of the Condo Smarts column. Tony Juventu is with us. Tony, good morning and welcome back. 
Oh, good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Belated Happy New Year. We haven't talked in quite a while, so I know I'm a little behind the curve on that one, but all the best to you. You published a, a column in the paper about a week or so ago, tips to keep your strata running smoothly in 2022 at the start of the year. Let's get those ducks in a row and, and hope for the best. So can we go through your list, Tony, please? You bet. Um, you know, it's many of these things come out of decisions from the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and they're just small little technical errors that are oversights, and they're a result of a lack of planning and preparation in a lot of cases. And if a strata takes just a little bit of extra time and figures out what they're doing when it comes down to meeting notices or voting at meetings or how they're dealing with bylaw rules and bylaws, rules and enforcement, it makes all the difference of the world, both to the strata, but it also keeps them off the radar screen of the tribunal. Let's talk a little bit about where, where one finds. If you're a strata councillor or a member of a strata council, in British Columbia, and you're a little iffy on the specifics of the rules. Tony, where do you go? Where are the rules completely identified? Well, it's, I wish it was that simple to say there was one catch-all place. But for, for starters, um, your strata councils and your property managers should have a copy of the Strata Property Act, a copy of all of your bylaws, and a copy of all of your strata plan filings that include things like your voting t- entitlement, how many votes units get, uh, and your schedule of unit entitlement that actually shows each person's portion of their strata fees. Okay. Without these documents, it's almost impossible to guarantee any kind of level of accuracy. Um, you know, a common error that we see, and it's not intentional, it's, it's purely accidental, is what happens is the um, management company might change. Um, and you might have been through a change of three or four companies over the last five or six years. And oftentimes the records are just passed on from one to the other without anybody checking to verify whether the unit entitlement or the voting or anything else has been done properly. And then and then you get down the road to discover the wrong unit entitlement for calculating strata fees has been used. Um, you know, so to start with the clean house of documents, get yourself a good copy of the act. Um, you can have a, a hard copy, which can be ordered through our offices, or you can just simply use the online version by clicking on clicking onto the um, Chilla website, uh, and it's always there. It's always updated. It's always accessible. Um, and then, of course, get get to land titles. Get through um, uh, an account from some office um, and print off all of your bylaws and, and be perfectly clear about what bylaws that you actually have that are filed in land titles. What's current, and then of course any rules that your strata has passed over the years, you should have a published list of those as well. It, it's a really good starting place to get this right. Is it uh, is it compulsory, Tony? If I'm looking, if I'm condo shopping right now, and I go to a place this afternoon, and it's a nice looking unit, and I'm thinking about buying it, it's everything's all the, everything lines up nicely, and I want to know about uh, the details. Is it compulsory for the seller in that condo or in that strata environment to pass? along uh, a list of all of those bylaws, for example, because some of them may be uh, reflective of an environment I might not want to move into. No, that's a a really great point. And I um, and it's nice if the seller has a copy of the bylaws, but I would not rely on those if I was a buyer. Okay. I would make, I would be contacting my notary or lawyer or whoever, my real estate agent, and I would be requesting a copy of the bylaws printed off of the land title registry. Um, what, the, a, a common, a common failing is strata councils, um, and property managers frequently try to consolidate 
five or six different filings or listings. And those might or might not reflect what really is filed in land titles. So you, as a buyer, be cautious. Um, only get documents from the sources that are reliable. And when it comes to bylaws, the bylaws themselves are filed in land titles. Only use those as your resource. There are also rules, though, Stratus can pass rules that regulate, you know, common property. Sure. Um, are the, you know, when can we use the pool or the mm-hmm. sauna or parking, those yep. kind of things. Um, this, when you request a Form B information certificate from the Strata Corporation, a copy of those rules has to be attached to that uh-huh. form. Okay. So, so take the time to read the Form B and all of the information that's attached to it. As a buyer, it, it, it will be worth it 10 times over for you. And your last tip for Strata Councils organizing themselves for a, a 22 year is bylaw enforcement. And this is where a lot of stuff breaks down. It's one thing to have bylaws, Tony, but it's another thing to have bylaws with teeth, isn't it? Well, it is. First, your bylaws have to be enforceable, which means they have to comply with every enactment of law and including the Human Rights Code. So that's your first test. The next test is making sure you pass them correctly. So if you're in a strata that's commercial and residential property mix, uh-huh. both, both the commercial and the residential have to pass these bylaws separately for, the, for them to be enforceable. And that's turned out to be a common error that's popped up on a number of tribunal decisions. And, and without that, your bylaws can maybe deemed to be unenforceable. Um, the, the other side of that is basic bylaw enforcement don't make one of your council members the bylaw enforcement officer. Right, right. Um, Strata Council are not the bylaw police. They respond to, you know, apparent violations or complaints from owners. It goes to council. The decision on whether to pursue this or deal with it is a majority decision of council. Individual council members don't have the authority to make decisions and impose fines. And that's where it gets off the rails as well. Some some sort of assume the title of vice principal and appoint themselves director of discipline. And oops, that's a mistake. Uh, well, that's a mild version of what I see sometimes. <laughs> some people some people have actually published things that look like a, a parking ticket system, and they go around writing up citations and stick them on people's doors. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just simply not enforceable. You know, as an owner, your our bylaws and rules that we have are just the, the lowest form of regulation, but they still have to give us the protection of the pr- principles of natural justice. They have to give us notice. We have a right to dispute them mm-hmm. and then and then after that process they have to inform us what the decision is and we still have a right to dispute if we disagree to go to the tribunal or to the courts so tony uh final question to you this morning it's awfully nice of you to give us a little bit of time on the weekend you're a busy guy uh let's talk from the perspective again of, per, of prospective buyers again going into perhaps for the first time a lot of young buyers getting in the game and the only place they can do that is in a strata environment what are the what are the, the what above all should they be watching for what are the 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 the, the potential pitfalls well i think that the biggest a liability for most first-time buyers and most buyers in condos is what does the future look like? You look, you know, you you, you look into the looking glass and figure out um, when are the major costs and expenses going to come up for things like roofing? And yeah. When does the building envelope and decks and balconies have to be done? Because these costs run into the tens of thousands of dollars per unit. So, you know, I think what as a buyer, I would be requesting a copy of the depreciation report and I would be looking very closely at what's coming up in the next 10 years and figuring out, okay, you know, down the road, there's a roof that's going to cost $700,000. 
how much money is in the contingency fund? Probably not very much, yeah. which means I'm going to be faced with a special levy. Can I afford it when it comes down the road? Very that important. Depreci- yeah, that depreciation report is just a roadmap for the future for the Strata Corporation, both for financial planning, but it's a real key um, operations document. And and new new buyers, new owners, and corporations should be looking at this closely on a regular basis. Important information. Thanks very much, Tony. The uh, other valuable piece of information we can pass along uh, at the end of our conversation, of course, is your web address. It's a fabulous website. Please remind us of it. Uh, so the CHOA website is www.choa.bc.ca, and all of the resources, the guides, um, are public access, and we have a number of um, free webinars coming up on Tuesdays at lunch starting at the end of this month. So, so go on and sign up and, and make yourself well-educated. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday morning uh, with a story we're following the salmon again this weekend as we do frequently on our program and the new report and you perhaps have seen this on Global News uh, hundreds of thousands of sockeye salmon caught in southern Alaska last year were supposed to be headed to BC rivers this data comes as Pacific salmon face major declines and BC fishers are severely restricted from fishing in our own waters here to talk more about it is Aaron Hill Mr Hill is the executive director of the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. Aaron, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us today. Aaron, flesh this story out for us a little bit. 800,000 fish that were supposed to end up in British Columbia were intercepted by Alaskan fishers before they could make it back to B.C. How do we know those were B.C. fish? Um, Good question. Well, so as your listeners probably know, salmon from all over B.C., uh, swim out to the ocean after they hatch and spend at least a year of their life, uh, sometimes many years, feeding up in the North Pacific Ocean, right up into the Gulf of Alaska. And then they swim home to spawn in the rivers they were born in. Right. And and we have genetic data um, from the, the, they get caught in Alaskan fisheries because they swim through the, uh, the Alaska panhandle on their way home to BC. And that's been happening for a long time. Um, and we, there are genetic samples taken uh, and tagging studies that are done on a lot of those, those fish, so we, we know where they're headed, but there are also some that we don't know, and that's, that's a problem with the Alaskan fisheries as well as they're not um, doing the catch mon- some of the catch monitoring they should. But what data we do have show that they're catching a huge proportion of our fish. Okay, now, and the other problem, uh, or the other part of the problem, Aaron, it's a very important part, too, is the restrictions imposed on British Columbia fishers. Talk to us about those, please. That's right. So, as you mentioned, our salmon runs are hitting record lows in recent years due to a number of factors. And as a result, our governments have shut down... Have announced unprecedented fishing fishing closures in both uh, the commercial and the recreational fisheries and that's re- that's really hit a lot of fishing communities and industries hard and me- meanwhile the Alaskans have basically gone on with business as usual in the fisheries right across the can- the BC Alaska border and these are fisheries that are designed primarily to intercept BC salmon that are swimming through their waters. Now, I'm, I'm told that there is a Pacific Salmon Treaty between Canada and the United States that includes language that should specifically address this issue that isn't happening. Is that the case? That's right. The treaty is basically useless on this issue. The um, 
take Skeena River Sockeye, for example. There was uh, about a quarter of the total run. This is BC's second largest sockeye run after the Fraser. About a quarter of the total run was caught by the Alaskans this year, while Canadian commercial fleets caught zero. They logged uh, over 3,000 boat days of fishing in Alaska just on, on the fisheries that are hammering those fish. And over 90% of the fishing actually took place outside of a, the period of time that the treaty actually controls. Uh-huh. So it's useless. And we have no leverage over the Alaskans in the treaty process. Whenever uh, we bring up these issues in meetings with them, they get up and walk out of the room. They have no incentive to sit at the table and work out a deal that's going to um, be better for help, help us recover our fish populations that we're, you know, we're spending hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars on recovery programs for these fish, shutting down our fisheries and basically getting slapped in the face. Well, it's interesting you would mention hundreds of millions. The number $647 million comes to mind pretty quickly, Aaron, by way of federal money at least earmarked for Pacific salmon, preservation, restoration, etc. What's going on with that? Right. That's yeah. That's the uh, big federal announcement of the Pacific Salmon Strategy Initiative, and there's provincial money that's coming in as well. Probably another hundred million or so from them. And uh, yeah, that's that's a big deal. It's uh, <laughs> you go off on a whole other tangent about what's what's good and what's not good about how the feds are spending that money. Right. But they are putting it up, and it's helping. And we need the Alaskans to follow suit because. These interception fisheries in Alaska, are they're some of the dirtiest fisheries on the west coast of North America. They would actually be illegal in Alaska if these fisheries were targeting Alaskan salmon population mm. because it's written into Alaska's constitution that they actually have to get a minimum number of salmon back into their rivers before they can go fishing. And they're not applying that same uh, same rule to our fish that are swimming through their waters. Aaron, uh, not a lot of time left for this conversation, but the important question, I guess, uh, in the short term particularly is, is there any remedy if they if they refuse to even sit down and talk about it or when the subject is raised at a sit-down, they get up and leave the room, what remedy is possible? Well, I think we just have to make as much noise as possible. And, I mean, the, the practical solution, if we can get them to do it, is to just move their fisheries inland a little bit right. so that they're targeting their own populations instead of ours because they could sustainably um, harvest their own populations no problem if they just move the location. They also need to start collecting um, data on the bycatch species, on species like Chinook and Steelhead that they're actually throwing back dead and not even recording the catch of, which is it's just absolutely crazy in this day and age that that would be allowed to happen. And, so and, those, those are the two things we need to see. And it's all, as, as it exists right now, it's completely unsupervised, correct? Uh, I would say mostly uh, unsupervised. They certainly, yeah, in terms of the bycatch, yeah. they, they're not even paying attention. It's, uh, it's the Wild West. So, um, boy, this is this is not the kind of news. And, and a good way, we had the story on Global News uh, last night on the on the News Hour, and uh, clearly, it's it's impacting especially northern British Columbia communities whose livelihood depends largely on on catching salmon. Uh, what do you say to those people? Um, I feel their pain, and we need to work together to turn this thing around and uh, get the Alaskans to treat uh, BC salmon as as well as they treat their own salmon. Uh, good point. Aaron, thanks for this this morning. We do appreciate your, your update. It's always good to have you on the show.
Yep. Thanks again for having me. There's Appreciate it. Aaron Hill is the executive director of the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. Great website there, too, friends, to just keep an eye on what the heck is going on out there in international water. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.